did not go the way I thought it would. So about four or five weeks ago, when we were working on the series and figuring out what's the series going to be about and what passages will we use, this, the passage that we're working with today was decided back then. But I thought it said one thing, and then when I got into it, realized it says another thing. So this is what we are going to be looking at today. Will you read this out loud with me from 1 John chapter 1? It's a little bit long, but I think there's something good about speaking the word of God together. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. So originally, I was thinking of this passage in terms of what about us, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what happens when we sin? How do we deal with that? And that is certainly an element of what's being discussed in the passage today. But there is a difference between being a Christian and sinning. Maybe the, the old-fashioned word is backsliding, when you have a temporary lapse back to sinful behavior or unbelief. It's possible to backslide. It's possible for all Christians to fall into sin. But there's a difference between that and there's a difference between formally rejecting Jesus, formally rejecting Christianity. And interestingly enough, both dynamics are happening here in this passage in 1 John. Now, we've been looking at the book of 1 John over the last few weeks, and 1 John was written to a group of Christians in a church, a church that had been experiencing a lot of division. They recently had a whole group of people leave the church because of doctrinal differences, and it was specifically because of people who decided that Jesus, they believed Jesus was not God, and that they weren't sinning, and they weren't sinful people, and they didn't need saving that way. And, and so they left this church. Now, as I've studied uh, the, for this series over the last few weeks, I, I knew that. Uh, that's, that's just good Bible study. If ever you're trying to dig into something, you always want to look at who's the author of the passage. What was the context in which it was written? Wh wh who was it written to? And in this case, this was a letter. So what group of people was it written to? What were they going through? So I've been studying all that. But frankly, I haven't talked about it a lot with you because I just kind of 
didn't think it was that important of a conversation because their, their issues were all about Jesus and being part of the Trinity and people didn't really, there's a group of people saying Jesus isn't really God, he's not the son of God, he's not a member of the Trinity. And I just thought, that's, you know, that's a first century problem. That's not really an us problem. So we'll talk about the parts that are relevant to us. So I've kind of just focused on some other things. And there have even been uh, two times, at least two times that I remember in the last few weeks when I've talked with you about cultural shifts that are going on and the marginalization of the church, how the American church is moving from really being a center place in society to the biblical church being moved out into, uh, onto the fringes into more of a minority position. And I'd specifically mentioned to you how we needed to be aware of doctrine of the Trinity being something that was up for question that we just needed to be aware that down the road, people are really going to be wrestling with this. People, this the doctrine of Jesus as the Son of God is going to be something that, that we're going to have to be prepared to respond to. But what has completely unsettled me, what has completely unsettled me is that this just happened to me in a conversation with someone. Now, I, I thought it would be down the road. I thought it would be in the future. I thought it wouldn't be here. And the combin I just had a, I had a recent experience in, along with uh, digging into the setting of the scripture that has helped me understand kind of what John was going through and I think the message that he has for us today. Not too long ago, I met up with someone for a spiritual conversation. And this was a person that I specifically remember having the thought several months ago, I'm so grateful for this person. They are so solid in their faith. I know they've been through a lot, and they just talk. I I remember them saying things like, I just love Jesus. What would I do without Jesus? And I just remember thanking the Lord. I'm so grateful that they are so solid in their faith. And so when I sat down recently in a conversation with this person, I was not prepared to hear the words, I don't believe that the Bible is really the moral guide for living anymore. And I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God anymore. And I don't really want to follow Jesus anymore. I can't even tell you, church, how completely unprepared I was for, for that because this was someone I thought I knew. When we baptize people, we ask them questions. Like, we ask them two questions. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And will you trust him as your savior? And the words that were spoken to me were, I do not believe Jesus is who he says he was, and I do not trust him as my savior. And this is exactly, exactly the scenario that's going on in 1 John. One of the reasons I was so, so torn up about it is as I was reading 1 John this week, I'm thinking, this is it. This is what John's talking about. He just had a group of people leave his church because they're saying, we don't sin. You say, you say that people sin. We don't, we don't sin. We don't believe that Jesus is God, and we're not part of this group anymore. And so here we have these people who have left over this 
disagreement about who Jesus is. And John is writing this letter to the church, to those who have remained behind, to those who are the faithful church, who probably are experiencing some confusion and a lack of confidence. Like, okay, now, what is, we, we do believe this, right? Like, we, we are committed to this, right? We, Jesus, is, J- Jesus is trustworthy, right? And so here we have John addressing this group of people, saying, yes, it is possible for us to sin. Yes, there is restoration in Jesus, but we have to be committed to Jesus. And John here is addressing these words to the faithful church. Now, we'll go through this passage two times. First, to see what John is saying to those who have been unfaithful to Jesus, and then secondly, to those who are, who are currently being faithful to Jesus. So in 1 John chapter 1, we read, John writes, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He's telling the church, these people are claiming to have fellowship with God. They're claiming fellowship with God, but they're denying Jesus, and they're lying. They're not living by truth. They don't have fellowship with God. In verse 8, John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, John has a very healthy view of sin. He's later on saying, we know that sin happens, and we know that Jesus forgives us and brings us into a redemptive place, but we don't get to claim that we don't have sin. And that's exactly what was going on with this, this opposition. They were saying, we don't sin, we don't have sin. And he, and he says they're claiming to be without sin. They're deceived. They don't have truth. And similarly, in verse 10, he writes, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. He's saying they don't have God's word in them. They're claiming they haven't sinned. They're, they're claiming that they don't need Jesus to be the sacrifice for their sins. And so John is taking a very clear position and saying, these people say they follow God, but they don't, because Jesus is the way to the Father. And so he's, he talks about those who oppose Christ. Let me talk for a minute about the word antichrist. Sometimes we hear the word antichrist, and I think Pastor Adam might have addressed this a few weeks ago. Sometimes we hear the word antichrist, and we think, revelation, creepy, crawly, it's another name for the devil. Now, there's a spirit of antichrist, which means what we think it does, antichrist, a person who is against Christ. That's exactly the way that John is using it in his letter. He's using antichrist as, the, as peop, referring to people who are against Christ, who are against Jesus as divine. Uh, just one example of, of multiple that are listed in John's epistles. 1 John 2.22, he says, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So John says, let's not be Antichrist, let's be pro-Christ. We have to recognize the position, the authority, the significance of Jesus as Son of God. Incidentally, in, in first service today, we received members into the church. And we'll be doing, for those of you interested, we'll be doing another membership class a little later this summer. But one of the things we always go through in the membership class is how to identify cults and what is the difference between an Orthodox church and a cult. And the number one factor is the question, what do people say about Jesus? If, if there is a group of people that does not give Jesus divinity, that does not recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, that does not recognize the Trinity— that fits into the cult category. It is a mark of Orthodox Christianity 
to recognize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All Christians across the world and all the different branches of Christianity share that belief. So there are two important characteristics of church. The first one is confrontation, woohoo, and the second one is fellowship. So two important characteristics of the church. The church is a place where godly, spiritually, spiritual appropriate confrontation happens, and it is a place where fellowship is supposed to happen. Let's talk about confrontation first. Now, how many of you love to confront people? I'm just going to get in your face and tell you what you did wrong. It's fun. Anybody like that? All right. If that's you, you probably shouldn't do it, okay? Uh, we want you to be a little afraid to confront people just so you do it nicely. But, uh, but, it, but, the, but the scripture talks about the role of confrontation in the church. Now, what's, here's what John is not doing in this situation. We do not see John sitting quietly by while a group of people say, we no longer believe in Jesus anymore. And he, he doesn't just say, okay, well, you just go believe what you want. You go believe what seems right to you. You find your truth. He doesn't let them quietly slip away. He, says, let's, he doesn't say, let's just not talk about it. He, says, he doesn't say, let's just avoid this awkward fact that people are leaving and, tr and try to brush, brush it over. He says, no, love looks like truth. And he's, in this particular case, he's writing a letter to his church. So in this particular case, he's seeking to encourage his church. But he's calling out the distinctions of, and by saying what they did was wrong. He doesn't waffle on that. He doesn't say, well, you know. He says, no, what they did was not okay. Now, the Apostle John is an old man now. He is kind of like what we would call a regional superintendent. He oversees a network of churches in an area. And you know how, how the older you get, the kind of, you say things as they are. You get a little bit worried about saying it nicely. John just, John's got it. I don't know if it's because he's older because he's con convinced about Jesus, but he just says it out loud for the people in the back. And he, he doesn't say, well, they might be right. He doesn't say, well, we'll agree to disagree. He says, verse 6, they are walking in darkness. He says, verse 6, they're lying. He says, verse 8, they're deceived. These are strong words about people who used to be part of the church community. He calls them out. I, I just, I find this very uncomfortable I find it very, I find it true, and I'm glad somebody's doing it, but when we think about the reality of that playing out in real life, it's uncomfortable. John is able to do, so, so it comes down to a disagreement, right? Be because they're saying, well, this is truth, and the, the church is saying, no, this is truth, and the opposition says, no, this is truth, and the church says, no, this is truth, and John says, okay, this is truth, and I'm saying it on my apostolic authority. Point A John's authority to confront them is rooted in his apostolic authority. And that's a mouthful. We talked about this more last week, so you're going to have to listen to last week's message if you want to dig into that. But we talked about how Jesus commissioned the apostles, and he gave the apostles authority to teach and to preach. And all of historic doctrine, all of basic beliefs, are represented in the apostles' teaching. So apostolic authority is what we should be keeping in mind as we are figuring out doctrine. We're looking at what the apostles talked, uh, taught on behalf of Jesus. So John has apostolic authority, and he's able to say, nope, this is the truth. Letter B, in talking about confrontation, letter B is how you do confrontation, 
matters. Have any of you ever been confronted in a not good way about something? Fun times, right? Fun times, fun times. How you do confrontation matters. I think I've talked about this before, but my mother was so good at confronting me as a kid when she was raising me. She was so good at it. I wish I could be half as good as my kids. But my mom was so good at it, and she, she just knew how to, how, to, how to be direct and clear, but to ask the probing questions. Is that true? Why did you do this? What, what do you think was going to happen? Oh, she was so, and all without squashing me down, but while being, oh, she was so good. I don't know how she did it. The Holy Spirit helped her. But I, that was nice to be confronted in ways like that. It helped me change. It helped me grow. But when I've had people in my face kind of not being nice about it, I don't want to respond to that. So how, how you do confrontation matters. I was looking through the scripture at different methods of, of confrontation and different ways that people get called out for sin and for things that aren't right. And we could spend a whole sermon series on all of this, but, but uh, just a few examples that I thought were neat. One of my favorite examples of confrontation of uh, what is God going after Adam and Eve after they ate the forbidden fruit. And you know what he does? He doesn't, it's not like they eat the fruit and then there's this crack of lightning and it strikes the earth and then it's like, oh, there's everything bad has happened. You know what God does? At first, it's just quiet, and then God goes after them. He starts looking for them. Has God lost them? No. Does he know where they are? Yes. But he goes after them where they are hiding, and he begins to ask them questions. And he goes among the gar- in the, to the garden, and he calls to the man, where are you? Is it because he needed to know where they were or because he wanted them to respond to him? And then they have a little conversation and the man says, I was naked because I was hid. And and the Lord God says, who who told you you were naked? Let's just, you never had that realization before. Why are things different now? And then he says, have you eaten from the tree? Now, does God know? He knows. But he's asking these questions to draw them into relationship, to get them to engage with him, to, to help them understand that he's calling out to them, to he's reaching out to them. And then the Lord God says to the woman, what is this you have done? And his whole method of confrontation is this beautiful reaching out for reconnection, reaching out to reestablish. There's another example in the Old Testament. And uh, King David uh, had just just experienced, a, had just practiced a sin of taking another man's wife for himself. There's a whole big dramatic story about it. And the prophet Nathan goes to confront him about his sin. So the prophet Nathan goes to the king, and he says, okay, king, uh, there's this story I'm going to tell you. There's a rich man, and there's a poor man, and they both have little sheep. And this man, they love, the poor man loves his sheep, but then the rich man comes along, and he steals the poor man's sheep and uh, treats, treats the poor man badly just because he's poor. And Nathan says, King, what should the judgment be for this man? And the king says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. You stole someone else's little sheep. Now that's a more direct confrontation, right? But it's a different way. Uh, Here's another method of of confrontation. In the New Testament, Matthew 16, Jesus and Peter are having a little interaction, and Peter's saying some crazy stuff like Peter often did, and Jesus turns to him and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
Now, I think we need to leave calling people Satan God's business and not our business. But that's a very direct, stop Peter, not okay, communication. And here we have John saying to his church, stop church, that's not okay, let's acknowledge that. Letter C is this. It is necessary to confront sin. We struggle with this. This is so countercultural to our American church system. We just think that we shouldn't call people. I mean, we're scared to have boundaries in the church. Like, we're we're scared to say um, yes or no. We're scared to have boundaries in regular relationships, much less about sin issues. We just, we try to not talk about stuff too much. And how we confront does matter, but, but that sin should be called out is a real thing. And if it's hard for you, if you have a Christian brother or sister, if you have a loved one, if you have somebody who's not following Jesus and you know they profess to follow him, you have a path. You, you have a relationship as a Christian brother and sister to say, hey, what's going on here? That's not just the job of, by, by the time it gets to me, it's not just the job of the pastor, by the time it gets to me, it's usually too late. You gotta, you gotta do this with, with your loved ones, with your family, with those that you're in relationship with. This is what it means to have fellowship together, to be community together. It's what people do who actually love each other. As we step up, we step in when things need to be addressed. Now, I hope that you'll be uncomfortable with it, because if you're uncomfortable with it, hopefully it will drive you to prayer, and hopefully your prayer will, drive, will help you to focus on love, and, that, and then you'll do it in an appropriate manner. I do think insecurity with it is a, actually a gift from God, and then it helps us seek God and how, how to honor him in that kind of work. We have, you, you might not know this, but we have a lot of sins in the church. We do. It, and, and I've come to realize over, especially over the last few years, I've, I've kind of just been waking up to this more and more, that it's kind of what we do as a church. We're a place where people come together who have admitted, my life without Jesus is lost. My life without Jesus is not okay. And I recognize that Jesus is the Savior, and he has redeemed me and is making me new, and there's good stuff. And so we come together humbly as people who recognize what we have been called out of and recognizing what what we are being called into. We've got all kinds of stuff. And what it means for us to be the body is to help each other grow. Iron sharpening iron, challenging each other, helping each other grow, being humble with one another. The mission of City Life Church, perhaps you've heard this before, the mission of City Life Church is to manifest God's kingdom now by calling out disciples and renewing our neighborhoods. So calling out disciples, I just want to look at that phrase a minute. Because when we call out disciples, it's, it's, I think it has two different connotations. Calling out means we're calling you out of the crowd, out of the world, to come and follow Jesus. Just like Jesus says to disciples, come and follow me. He's calling them out. He's invited you, come and do life with me. But sometimes calling out also has this connotation of calling you on the carpet. Like, okay, let's step up. You need to be faithful. You need to be obedient. To have fellowship with God, you've got to walk with him. It's, it's both. And a, a healthy church is, is going to seek 
these kinds of good and healthy, loving conversations with the power of the Holy Spirit helping them to do so in love and grace. John shows us this example of leaning in and saying we need to draw a line here. We can't just accept this. So two important characteristics of the church. The first is confrontation. The second is fellowship. Fellowship. Now we've been talking a little bit about fellowship over the last few weeks because it keeps coming up in the book of First John. The ultimate goal is for us to have fellowship with God. We want to be in a right place with God. We want to have confidence in our relationship with God, confidence that we have fellowship with him. There is a Greek word for fellowship that is, it's the word koinonia. Can you say koinonia? Koinonia. Uh, we call our small groups here at City Life life groups. When I was a kid, back in the 70s, it was kind of like this popular thing. They didn't call them life groups. They called them koinonia groups in my church. And so I remember my parents going to their koinonia groups. And it was all about community and fellowship. And koinonia means partnership, sharing in common, having communion with each other, having agreement and unity of purpose. Uh, this is just a little side note, but I'm, I'm excited for city life to grow in koinonia and fellowship, especially over these next few months. I think uh, with, with the COVID and rebuilding and regathering after church, there's, there's been a lot of shifting and moving around. We've had some new faces join us, and we, we, we can dig into some of this fellowship, and I'm excited about that, and I think summer will help us to do that too. But fellowship with each other and fellowship with God is a key theme here in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, we read, if we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, which is what the opposition was doing, right? They were saying, we have fellowship with God, but they're walking in darkness. We lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So a few points here. Letter A, fellowship with God comes through trusting Jesus for salvation. You don't get fellowship with God apart from Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. Just to emphasize that, letter B is fellowship with God comes exclusively through Jesus. You do not get to the Father other than through Jesus. He is exclusive that way. That is offensive to people. People don't like to be limited. People don't like boundaries. People like possibilities and openness. But the scripture says, broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path to life. This is one of those narrow places where Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. No one comes to him except through me. Letter C I find this very interesting. Fellowship with the church and fellowship with God are connected. In verse 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, see, I what, here's what I think it would say. I would think it would say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we'll have fellowship with him. But he doesn't say that. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There is something about following Jesus and walking in his light that also brings us fellowship with other people who are doing the same thing. So there is a connection where when we have fellowship with God, there's a natural connection to fellowship 
with his church. The false teachers, whose opinions John is quoting and refuting, talked about having fellowship with God, but they, were, they did not have fellowship with the other believers. And John says, you can't have fellowship with God unless you have fellowship with God's church. The true church being defined by apostolic teaching. And so then, John is drawing clear lines about, we got to get Jesus right. We need to make sure that we are committed to him, that we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we recognize Jesus as our way of salvation. He's like, get the, we get these things right. And they are sinning in that way. But then John has some words to say to the rest of the church, those who are still in the church, the faithful believers who, who are seeking to follow Jesus, who are seeking to walk in the light, who are seeking to walk with him, who are saying, well, I feel a little weird about saying uh, about some of these like confrontation things because I'm not perfect myself. In fact, I've got some sins myself that I'm not so sure what to do with. And, and, and much of John's book is about giving believers confidence. And he says, I want you to have confidence in your relationship with God. So let's talk about sin. Because the thing that trips you up and the thing that makes you unconfident in your relationship with God is sin. So let's talk about how sin interacts with your life. Let's read the passage for the last time. John chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, okay, if you are a believer in Jesus seeking to walk in the light, this is for you. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. It's a present, ongoing tense of that verb, saying it's going on and on, and there's that purification happening. As we walk in the light of Jesus, we are in a state of being constantly purified by his blood, being presented to Jesus as righteous and acceptable in God's sight. Does it mean everything's perfect in us all the time? No, but we have the atoning blood of Jesus covering us, putting in a, a confident and in a secure position with God. He says that if walking with him, uh, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies you from all sin. The passage continues, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you hear that word purify comes through again? He is in a state of, of saying, you are covered by the blood of Jesus. You have a position with, with Jesus that is confident because of your commitment to Jesus and your trust in him for your salvation. You are covered by the blood of Jesus and you are made one with God. You know what he's not doing here? He's not saying, oh, you're sinless now. He says, yeah, you're kind of bad. We're all kind of bad. We've got it bad, and we're, we're we've, we've been messed up. Sin is pervasive. We have this natural sin that we're born into. We have willful sins we participate in. We have unwillful sins that we do sometimes. We, sin is pervasive. It's the, the, there's a pervasive character of sin. And yet, as we walk in the light, we have the purifying blood of Jesus purifying us, making us new, raising us up, drawing us toward greater things, helping us to repent, helping us to confess, and then restoring us back on the path again. 
we can pursue a life of growing holiness because of God's grace in our lives. This purification that's strong and a purification that's powerful and ongoing and comprehensive. Some of us have been committed to saying, I trust Jesus to take me to heaven someday, but I don't trust him to forgive me now. I trust Jesus to give me that ticket to heaven, but I don't trust that he can purify me now. You're trusting him for the really hard thing. You're not trusting him for the easier thing. He's bigger than that. And you're not, you don't get to be the one who decides what he does and doesn't purify. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I would just say some pastoral words to you. If you don't, if you don't feel forgiven, just keep confessing and let that atoning blood of Jesus wash over you till you get it. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean that God isn't offering it. It means you haven't woken up to it yet. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. And then John says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He's not saying, so just go ahead and sin how much you want because it's covered by the blood of Jesus and just kind of do what you want. And you know, it's freedom and it's grace, so just, just do what you want. He says, no, 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 I, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Just really try to walk in the light. Stay strong. Be faithful. You, you know you have sinned. You know you're vulnerable to temptation. We're not, we're not arrogant about that. We know we need a savior. But John says, I'm writing this to encourage you to not sin. I write this to you so that you won't sin. But then he goes on. But if anybody does sin, because life happens, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is just one reason why we need Jesus. Our mediator, our connection to the Father, the one who sacrificed it all to make us be able to be right with God, the one whose blood was shed, his blood that is poured out that we celebrate in communion, that atoning blood that covers us and is the forgiveness for our sins. You know, it's hard to deal with the outside attacks on the divinity of Jesus and what is truth and what is real Christianity. It's hard to deal with all that. But it's even harder when we're struggling in our own selves and in our own place of, well, what about my own sin? There's all this other stuff out there, but I'm also kind of a mess right now. And what do I do with my own sin? And John is saying, first of all, we do have to call sin what it is with the outsiders, with the attacks, with the, the whole Jesus thing. We've got to get Jesus right. But second of all, let's remember who we are in Jesus. Redeemed, covered, not perfect now, but as we walk in light, we are being covered by his blood, experiencing the ongoing atonement of Jesus. This is the promise for all who have put their faith in Jesus. And so we are, church, committed to being 
pro-Christ and not anti-Christ. We need Jesus. And we trust Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. We believe that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And that the sins that weigh us down, the things that trip us up, the things that get in our way, as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and his blood purifies us from all sin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. John writes a little later in his book. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Okay, remember in, in this series we've said over and over, he uses this phrase, this is how you know. This is how you know you're saved. This is how you know you belong to God. This is how you know if you're walking the right path. He says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You, dear children, believe in Jesus. So you are from God, based on your trust in him. Whether you feel it or not, whether you feel worthy of not, whether you're wrestling with sin, whether you're conquering sin, wherever you are in that, you, dear children, if you have put your belief in Jesus, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. As a response to this, I, I just want to invite you to say, I believe in Jesus. Say it again. I believe in Jesus. Jesus, you are our Lord. You are God. We put our trust in you for our rescue. We put our trust in you for your forgiveness. We put our trust in you for your atonement. We put our trust in you that you will be kind and gracious to forgive us if we confess our sins to you. We are committed to you, Jesus. We put our stake on you. Anything that denies you, anyone that denies you, we are aware of that and we are on guard against it. And we elevate you, Jesus. We lift you up as our king. We say you are our God. You are who we worship. We love you, Jesus. Amen. We have the, the body and the blood of Jesus in communion and talk about, a, about something that acknowledges the centrality of who Jesus is. Take a few moments and bow your heads and close your eyes. Talk to Jesus. What's on your heart? What is the Holy Spirit stirring up in your heart? What sin might you need to confess to receive his atonement for today? What sin do you just want to get off your heart? What is the Lord stirring up in you?